Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, we get where you're coming from, and it doesn't it doesn't push an agenda, which is good. Yes, that is good. I agree with that. Um, and it works for the 21st century portrait part. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like I was so locked into like this the pop star like her becoming and this whole character study, which is like a whole thing that I like too. Yeah, because those two actresses carry it, and you are watching an invasive personal story. Hello, and welcome to The Critical Millennial. Yay. My name is Alex Holtz, and sitting next to me is the indie-loving movie Ooh, lover, yes. Kyle Cryan. Yes, and not Indiana Jones. And not Indiana Jones. Oh, wow, that plays in well today. Okay, you oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Let the segue sorry, let be. Se- I'm letting the segue be. Anyway, <laughs> thank you for listening to today's episode. Um, before we get into today's schedule, we want you to keep up with us on social media. Yes, we do. So follow us on Instagram mm-hmm. and Twitter. Just yes. search for The Critical Millennial and look for the purple and gold X. And remember that it marks the spot. Yes. So, today's episode, the first thing we're doing is talking about our number twos on the list. Our number two favorite films of all time. I'm so excited. (laughs) And then we have another unpopular opinion this week. It's mine now. I was going to say, provided by Kyle, so (laughs) we'll see what people think of this one. I'm curious. I'm definitely in the margins on this. Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. I think so. 100%. Yeah. And then, we're going to be talking about a very Kyle-esque movie. Yes! Called Vox Lux. I'm so ready for this. Yes, Kyle. Oh. Kyle's been very pumped, and this was the first time I watched this movie, so I'm I'm excited to engage with him on this. Yeah, he has. I think he has a lot to say. So yes, I do. All right. Well, we're excited <laughs> today to be talking about this movie, and please join us on this ride through the critical millennial. Oh my gosh, the critical millennial. All right, so we're getting close, Kyle. We're getting I know, close. I know. Today we're talking about the number twos on each of our lists. Mm. And I, for one, am very excited because I am a big fan of Kyle's number two. So I'm going to let him open up Yee. this. So, Kyle, let's hear your number two. My number two movie, and I think. When I say it, it's going to shock people. I think so, too. Simply because of the nature of the film. But when I start talking about it in the depths of the film, it's not going to surprise anyone. Yeah. Um, So my number two is Mad Max Fury Road. Yes! This is the quintessential action film of the decade. Oh, 100%. Um, No other action film has come even close to the spectacle and the depth that Mad Max Fury Road has yeah. this decade. Yeah, this 100%. decade. I'm putting it up there with Indiana Jones, mm. a certain one. Yeah, okay. Um, I'm putting it up there with T2. Oh, yeah. I'm putting it up there with Aliens. Oh, my goodness. As like quintessential, quintessential action films that, that just define generations. I think I would agree with you. Yeah, you should. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but here's here's what I love most about this film, besides the basically two and a half hour long action scene that it is. Mm. Um, I love the simplicity of the storytelling at the at the surface level. And that's where a lot of people stop with yeah. this film. Is like, oh my gosh, it's an out and back action. They they return, like when I saw this in theaters with friends, people they, they were they were mad. They left the theater thinking it was dumb and stupid because like all they did was turn around and go back. Mm. All they did was turn around and go back. Yeah. They went back to the very place where they had been slaves for their entire lives and and took it over. And that's where I love this film, is that it is not just a revenge out and back, kill the bad guy, win the day story. You can see it as that, and that's fine. But at its core, it's about human rights. Mm. Because everyone in the film who's not the bullet farmer, who's not the... Imperator Joe, who's in charge of the water, who's not the gas guzzler, like these men who are in charge of things, anyone who's not them is basically treated as their slave. Uh, The women are used literally just to produce milk and babies. The men are then just born to then make the machine run. And strong men or men outside of the Citadel, like Max, are just then used for their blood to cure diseases 
for the for the the what did, I forget what they're called the boys that just run the yeah. Citadel. Yeah. And so like, at first glance, this movie can be all right out and back adventure story action great action. Then at a second level, it's like oh it's about about a peak of the almost a start of the Me Too movement with women being like you know the the women that he treats that he keeps in a bank vault. They're they're just used for their babies, and they paint like your our babies will not be used for weapons. Like we are not yours, our bodies are not slaves. And you think, oh, okay, now it's just about this freedom, like freeing these women who are being treated as sex slaves. And then you take it to the next level down, and you're like, everyone's a slave to the system. Then. Mm. And then it's about human rights, and what are we allowed to have and not have? Mm. And that's why I love this film because it's. At the surface, this action adventure with Charlize Theron should have won the Oscar for this, yep. just like Sigourney Weaver should have won the Oscar for Alien. Amen. That should have happened. This film should have won Best Picture. Yep. This film was nominated for like twelve Oscars. Okay, it won all the one. It should have won all of them. Yeah. Um, the colors are impeccable. Everything about this film is just near perfection. Mm. Just near perfection. And it's insane, it's Mad Max, it's madness, it's crazy. There's a man playing a flamethrowing guitar. <laughs> and like, oh, man. I just love everything about it from the action, yeah. from the violence, to the depths that the film goes. Oh, yeah. And the fact that it was the first film in a very long time to pass the Bechtel test, which is, do you know what this is? I don't know what that is. The Bechtel test is, is a test that movies get put through in which we see, do the women, when they talk to each other in these movies, talk about a conversation that has nothing to do with a man? Interesting. And a lot of movies fail that. Or their relationship to men. And most movies, when you watch, will fail that. Interesting. And so it, it frees women in that way, too, as well. And it was yeah. written and directed by a man. Right. By George Miller. Yep. George Miller. Is that right? I think so. Yeah, I think it was right. Because he directed first, the first one. Yeah, too. at first I was like, George Romero? That's different. That's a different George. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. different. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's so that's Mad Max Fury Road for me. That probably surprises a lot of people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, hope yeah. After me talking about it, you go back and you watch this movie with that in mind. Yeah. Take. I want you to watch this movie and remove the spectacle yeah. and focus in on what's being said. Yeah. That's interesting. I've, I'd have to go into it watching it with that perspective. I've never done that before. Mm-hmm. I, I honestly, when you say that, it makes sense from that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. Okay, Alex, what is your number two? I'm actually very excited to hear about it. Yes. So my, my number two is Raiders of the Lost Ark. Ooh. Indiana Jones. I love Indiana Jones. I think from... Like, just from, like, looking at it from a surface level, from a movie standpoint, Mm -hmm. I think that, I think it's one of the best, if not the perfect example of what an adventure movie should look like. Okay. Yeah. I'm not saying action, because I think that action has, like, a a broad spectrum, and I Mm -hmm. think Mad Max and, like, like you're saying, T2 and Aliens, those all kind of come together. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think adventure is, like, its own unique category that's kind of hard to do. Like globetrotting a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of, there's a lot of movies that do it just okay, and, like, it's, it's fun to be on the adventure along with these people, but this one, I think... Has the good mix of the action. It has the good mix of the adventure of the people. Like Indiana Jones is like he's just kind of like the cool guy, you know. Like he was the example of like whenever you see somebody think of like the adventurer, he's always wearing the fedora and has the mm-hmm. satchel on, kind of thing, you know. Like that's how people think of him, the adventurer now, because that's what Indiana Jones is built up. Um, and like just the supporting cast in here is awesome, like. It's it's just, like, the perfect adventure movie. Like, I love watching this movie. I watch this movie over and over and over again, and I will enjoy it every time. I love it. But I was really trying to think what about this movie makes me, like, critically engage it when I was thinking about mm-hmm. it for this, um, for the podcast. Because I really highly value storytelling, writing, um, yeah. storyboarding, things like that. And I was really thinking, like, what makes this... Critically, what makes me critically engage this movie? Mm. And a big thing I was thinking about is wh- what makes Indiana Jones such a likable character? Or what makes, why do people like Indiana Jones? And I had to think about that. And I think that a large part of this, th- the reason that I like this movie is there's so much of this movie that is about truth and understanding where truth lies. 
So the whole point of Indiana Jones is that they're going after the Ark of the Covenant, right? Oh, it, that's this is the one with the Ark of the Covenant. Yes, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, Sorry, yeah. I, they kind of all mesh right. together. That and that's kind of that's kind of the thing with Indiana Jones, which I'll talk about that in a little bit. But with Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's they're going after the Ark of the Covenant, and um, there's like this foothold in truth. So we know like. If you touch, from the Bible, we know that if you touch the Ark, or if you do basically what God has commanded you not to do with the Ark, you die. And there's examples of that in the Bible. And so those truths roll over into Raiders of the Lost Ark in the sense of, if you touch this, if you if you go anywhere near this, you die. But Indiana Jones, being a historian, being an archaeologist, he doesn't believe in that stuff. He even says, like, oh, that's just, like, mumbo-jumbo. That's, like, that's... Just some witchcraft that people have talked about for over the over the years, hmm. and I'm thinking like, is that somebody that is deserves to be looked up to, as is in the character of Indiana Jones? But what I've kind of like I've kind of come to thinking and like one of the big things I've looked up a few passages about truth, John eight thirty two, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Um, Truth is real. Truth is something that we all innately want to know. Yeah. And once you know truth, it's your mind is opened, right? Okay. And so that comes through Christ. Christ is, Christ is truth. And so what I'm kind of, the, the point I'm trying to make is that when, when it comes to Indiana Jones, there's this truth that's rooted in the Ark of the Covenant. There's this truth there. But Indy says it's a bunch of mumbo jumbo until the end of the movie, when he actually sees, sees, I put air quotes because he closes his eyes for that whole last scene. <laughs> but um, when he actually, when it, he actually sees what truth looks like, okay. people are killed. People are for just for touching the ark, for disobeying God, mm-hmm. and for not listening. These people are slaughtered, and I believe from that scene that Indiana Jones actually believes in that truth. He, since that happened, and you can watch the rest of the movies, Last Crusade, things like that. Um, if you watch in Last Crusade, all of a sudden Indiana Jones has to prove that he is faithful to the truth that is that comes from um, the Last Supper, and that comes from the the cup that he drinks from. Though that's not that's not necessarily biblical, the cup. Right. But he has to believe that there is some sort of faithfulness. Huh. And the the big thing with Indiana Jones is that he's smart, right? Teacher, professor, archaeologist, and so what does knowledge have to play into our faith? And I, I was, I was struggling, like kind of like to think, like so, like Indian Jones is smart, so he outwits all these bad guys, and then to the point of where he has to come to accept that the truth of the Ark is real, and that if they don't close their eyes at the end of this movie, God is going to kill them. And he, he understands and accepts that, but what's the difference between knowledge and wisdom? And I think that's what separates Indy from the Nazis. So the Nazis have all this knowledge. They, the Belloc, who's the bad guy, he has this knowledge of the Ark, and he thinks because he understands the Jewish faith, he's able to touch the Ark, he's able to come in contact with it, and he, he is able to channel the power of God because he knows about it. But Proverbs eighteen fifteen, an intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. I think that Indy has wisdom in saying, I would rather not know what's in the Ark and listen to what this legend says because I understand this truth to be real rather than seek out this knowledge that I am not ready to know or I don't deserve to know. Hmm. And I think I was really trying, like I was telling you, I was really trying to think and engage in how I can critically engage this movie. And I think it comes to the point of what's the difference between wisdom and knowledge. And I think it's a, there's a good divide between the Nazis in Indy Specifically, Belloc and Indy. Belloc wants to know knowledge, so he'll do whatever it takes to get to know that knowledge. Okay. Even if it comes to the point of disobeying. But Indy, he wants to know knowledge, but to the not to the point where he feels like he needs to know. He just knows that things deserve to be in the place where that they are called to. Okay. I... I, I can see that. Yeah. And I, I encourage you to watch Indiana Jones and to engage this movie from that perspective thinking that way because I as I rewatched it there's clear indications of the selfishness that comes from seeking only wisdom mm-hmm. only knowledge only and knowledge. wanting to know yeah I haven't watched these since I was like a kid yeah like my brothers used to have these on repeat okay and I would just like 
whatever. Yeah, yeah. whatever. And I think they, there's fun to be had, like at an mm-hmm. adventure level, like I was saying. But like, mm-hmm. I, as I was trying to find that critical engagement, I think that there's benefit to be had in that perspective. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah, today we are coming to our very popular segment. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> The unpopular opinion. (laughs) Uh, And today, who has provided the unpopular opinion is not me, but Kyle Cryan. So Kyle, I'm going to let you take this one away, because I feel like people might bite your heads off for this one. As if they didn't bite my head off for, like, thinking Lord of the Rings is just okay, and that Steve Rogers sucks. (laughs) Yeah, that one one got a lot of flack. Um, You know, like, I'm used to it at this point. Um, but my unpopular opinion is this sentence. Will Ferrell is not funny. <laughs> I laughed at it. <laughs> <laughs> the only time I've ever laughed at this man was in Megamind. Like, he had a couple lines in Megamind that I was like, this movie's not great, but that line was kind of funny. <laughs> like, but I think it had more to do with it being animated than really him. Right, um, right. But his best performance was in Stranger Than Fiction, and he proved in that movie he it can do drama really well. Yeah. And I want that man to do that. Yeah. But he's stuck to just the certain brand of comedy, which is just screaming. <laughs> yeah. All this man does is scream and run around or like be this like overly sexual in not a funny way. Like like old man. And it's yeah. not or he's a man child. Yeah. It's either he's an old perverted man or a man child. That screams the whole time. So, like, he's just... Will Ferrell is not funny. I think he's produced three good movies. Yeah. Hustlers that came out this year, Booksmart that came out this year, and Vice, which was nominated for a lot of Oscars. Yeah. He's produced some good stuff. Mm. But, like, I just... Him on screen is just not good. Mm. And it's not funny. It's more just annoying. I would, I would rather watch Lord of the Rings again. (laughs) You know, like, gosh, I'd rather sit through the Fellowship of the Ring than watch a Will Ferrell movie, the three hour director's cut. Yeah, right. But I think, I think it also has more to do with another unpopular opinion of mine that we could unpack a different time. Yeah. Which is that women are just funnier than men. Mm. Hands down. Women are funnier than men, in my opinion. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do, Do you have any follow up questions for Will Ferrell? Maybe not for Will Ferrell, but, like, I mean, like, I, my, as I've stated before in this podcast, my opinions of comedies are already extremely low. Yeah. So, like, I don't disagree with you necessarily. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with you, but I don't disagree with you. It's, you know? Yeah. Will Ferrell's not funny. Yeah. Sorry. Not sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do have a question, though. It's kind of off the books that I didn't prepare you for. Oh, okay. Um, is it, do you think that... Comedians, like or like funny actors, mm-hmm. funny actors. I put mm-hmm. air quotes there. Um, should do more like dramatic roles because like we see Jim Carrey do that a lot. I feel like because mm-hmm. like he used to, he always did the movies where he would just be like a babbling idiot. and yeah. just make faces. Yeah, but he's also done some really good movies that Eternal are like sunshine. Yeah. So do you think that more mm-hmm. comedians should do like dramatic roles? I think I think f- innately funny people have the best drama. Yeah. Because it's it's an old adage and it's true is that comedians are only funny because they've experienced a a depth of pain or turmoil or darkness mm. that an average person might not have. Yeah. That something's happened in their life that is that has either made them create this wall or make comedy their expression. Interesting. And and I and I can't say for Will Ferrell right. if he has or has not. All I can say is his comedy to me is not funny at yeah. all. Um, but I would love if, if comedy actors would pursue drama where we were, we're watching, um, oh shoot. I just lost his name. Um, he plays Barry on HBO. He's oh yeah. Bill Hader. Actor. Bill Hader. Bill Hader. Yeah. We're watching Bill Hader do that. Yeah. And do it, it effectively well. Like it chapter two for Bill Hader was like, there's comedy to his role, but he carries the drama for mm. that movie. Interesting. And it's, he does it so well. Kristen Wiig has done amazing drama with him in this movie called Skeleton Twins. Really? Um, it's an indie film. That's no why one's I've heard of it. That's why you've yeah. never seen it. And she also does it in, a, in another film called Welcome to Me, where she plays a woman who's obsessed with Oprah and thinks she's like an Oprah-type person. 
And it's a, it's a dark film that she does so well. So I think I would love comedy actors. Yeah. People who you would normally think to be in a comedy to continue on a trajectory of drama. Because Olivia Coleman just won an Oscar for The Favorite. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's hilarious. Yeah. She's so funny. But in The Favorite, she's so heartbreaking. Mm. Phoebe Waller-Bridge, the writer, creator, and actor of Fleabag, yeah. which I've been telling you to watch. I know, I know. I've been telling you to watch for so long now. It's like forever. <laughs> Breaks your heart from one scene to the next while making you laugh. Yeah. And it's because I think uh, co- comedians innately understand the human psyche. Interesting, yeah. I agree. I think so, that that's mm-hmm. a good perspective. I, a lot of times I think of like um, Robin Williams with mm-hmm. One Hour Photo. Have you mm-hmm. seen that? Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of... And I think even with his, like, how we know mm-hmm. his, how his life went on, like, I think there's an understanding and a depth mm-hmm. to that. So that's an interesting perspective. Yeah. But yeah, so I don't, hopefully people won't bite off your heads for this unpopular opinion. And it's okay if they do. And it's okay if they do. you know what? Will Ferrell's not funny. Ooh. So now we're at the moment that you've all been waiting for. It's just me. Or just Kyle. <laughs> Maybe just Kyle's been waiting for. We're going to talk about Vox Lux. Yeah. Sorry, Natalie Portman Ooh. and Jude Law. And what's the what's Young Celeste's name? Raffi Cassidy. Raffi Cassidy. Yes, she is awesome. Yeah. Um, but before we deep dive the movie, we're going to talk about mm-hmm. the movie just as a movie itself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what maybe some things that you like, maybe okay. something that you didn't like. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to let Kyle start. So, yeah. Kyle, why don't you go ahead? Okay. Um, so what works for me really well is the way that the, the film's structured. It lets you know, okay, we're in the prologue. It yeah. lets you know we're in Act 1, we're in Act 2, and we're in the finale. There's no, like, Act 3. Yes. Um, which I would have loved, because something that didn't work for me was this movie is not long enough. <laughs> um, it's, I mean, it's like two hours, but, like, I, I could have sat for another hour or two hours longer. And just watched this story unfold. Um, so I love that, because most films, when you watch an average... Film. I say average in the fact of like most films don't let you know when they're transitioning yeah. acts. You can still see when a film's transitioning acts. You can still see, you know, when, when a Star Wars film's moving into Act 3. Right. You can still see when like um, an X-Men movie or, or something's moving into Act 3. But this film tells you. And I love it. I love it because it lets you know change is happening. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a smart move. Yeah. On a lot of filmmakers. Uh, Willem Dafoe's narration is so good. It's so good. Ugh. Like, there's not much else to say about it other than it's just so good. Yeah. And it's refreshing. It really is. Um, I love the use of costuming. Uh, For Celeste, which is the main woman in the film that they follow through basically almost her, not her entire life, but a good chunk of her life, um, she has scars on her neck from from a gunshot wound. Yeah. And, like, she's always wearing something around her neck, whether it's a turtleneck, a huge, chunky, like, choker or necklace or, like, a scarf or something. Yeah. But I love it because they frame her face then with the costuming. Yeah. Which, for both Rafi Cassidy and Natalie Portman, their face is their strongest part of their body. It's, yeah. And yeah. their faces are gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And so to frame them in such a way... It really just draws attention to their face. Yeah. And they're never in, like, scandalous clothing right. or scandalous outfits. No one's ever dressed that way. Yeah. And so to just pull the attention to the actress's face, mm. I think, is done really well. And then there's a lot of great costumes in the movie. Yeah, She's are. a rock star. Yeah. She's a pop star. And the costumes are just so cool. So cool. <laughs> Natalie Portman. Natalie Portman. The way you feel about Jake Gyllenhaal... <laughs> the way I feel about Natalie Portman. And I also still feel that way about Jake Gyllenhaal. Like, Natalie Portman, to me, even though she was in those those prequels yeah. for Star Wars, yep. her, she does no wrong when she's on screen. <laughs> Except maybe when she died in Star Wars. That was a little rough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but this, to me, is her greatest performance equal to Black Swan and Annihilation. If you haven't seen Annihilation. Annihilation's great. Put... Put that on your watch list. It's on Prime. Yeah. Um, but this, she... Natalie Portman disappears and you see Celeste. You see this fictional woman come to life. Mm. Um, and it's just incredible. The music, uh, all the original songs were written by Sia. Yeah. Uh, the chandelier. Chandelier! Which is awesome. Yeah. 
Um, I saw her name on the on the credits. I thought yeah. that was cool. Yeah, and it, they're not songs Sia wrote for Sia and just couldn't find to put anywhere. They're songs Sia wrote for this movie. Yeah. Which is crazy. That's cool. Um, the last thing I'll talk about for right now in this section is the fact that it's shot like a documentary. Yeah. Like, you feel like... You feel invasive. Like, yeah. this is something you shouldn't be watching. Mm. And not in the sense of, like, oh, my gosh, it's so graphic, like, and it's porn or something like that. Oh, I shouldn't be watching because it's making me sin. Just you shouldn't, you feel like you shouldn't be watching because it's so intimate. Yeah, it's personal, right? It's so personal. And there are a lot of scenes that I think are either, like, either one long take. Yes. Or a couple long takes edited together. Which it looks cool. Most films today will rely on editing to keep you interested because we all have the attention spans of goldfish now, seemingly, according to Hollywood. Right, right. And, like, you know, I pick on Marvel movies a lot, but they're they're the chief chiefest of sinners when it comes to editing. Yeah. And the fact that, like, one punch is, like, 15 different cuts. Yeah. And it's, like... I want to watch the fight. I want to watch your movie. Stop doing that, Marvel. And this film, I think a lot of filmmakers could look at as an example of like how to just let the camera roll and trust your actors to keep the audience interested because that's why you hired them anyway. Right. To keep the audience interested in the story you're trying to tell. Yeah. And like... And so so I think those long takes are are awesome because it lets the actors do their job. Yeah. Uh, something that didn't work for me outside of the film's not long enough uh, <laughs> is is I first saw I've seen this film three times, twice in the last week. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the first time I saw it, I was on a plane just over the Pacific Ocean, and I was like, I'm not tired. I can't go to sleep. So I saw, I was just scrolling through, and this was there, and I saw Natalie Portman's face. Knew nothing about this movie. Right. I was like, I'm gonna watch it. <laughs> it's Natalie Portman watching this movie, um, and it was edited for content. Yeah. And so, like, the, the opening scene... Are you spoiling? Yeah. Okay. Because it's the opening scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we're also going to spoil the entire film. Yeah. The opening scene caught me off guard. It caught me off guard, too, yeah. because on the plane, it's edited for content. So, like, the, the opening scene's a school shooting, and they don't shy away from it. Mm. They don't shy away from a teacher getting shot. They don't show children getting shot. Um, you see, like, a bullet hits Celeste in the neck when she's, like, 13 in the movie, and then it cuts away, and then it cuts back, and, yeah. like, there's just a pile of dead children. Yeah, oh, man. And it's hard to see, but the edited version cuts when the teacher raises her hands, and is like, Colin! And then you hear, like, gunshot. Yeah. And then it cuts. Mm. And, like, I was like, whoa, I felt the weight of it. Yeah. I was like, on the plane, I was like, whoa, that's really heavy. Yeah. And I, in my brain, in my traveling brain, I was like well, this is a lot. And right. then I watched it again and it didn't cut. And I was like, I've never seen this. Where's this going? Mm. And then it does it really important stuff for Celeste's character. It does. But at the same time, I wrestle with like, now that I've seen it edited for that content and through, I'm like, which is really more effective? Yeah. Because I got it when it was edited for content. I was like, this happens. Right. Ooh. Yeah. This happens. And then I saw it happen, but then I see these really interesting things that happen to Celeste's character outside of being shot. Yeah. So I wrestle with that mm-hmm. of like, was there, is there some way around it? Yeah. But then when I realized the film's full title is Vox Lux, a 21st century portrait. Yeah. They have to show it. Exactly. They have to show the school shooting. Yep. Because yep. in 1999, when the film opens, it's rare. Yes. In 2019 or 2018, when this film came out, it's not. Exactly. It's not rare for children to be shot in America. Yeah. Yeah. So that's not necessarily what didn't work. It's just something I'm on the fence about. Right. Otherwise, the film works. Yeah. It's just not long enough. Yes. About yourself. So for me, so I tweeted about this when I watched the movie, (laughs) um, that this is a very Kyle movie. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. Dang it. uh, (laughs) When I saw uh, that tweet, I was like, I need to know now what you mean. He did text me, or like like pretty soon after, but... um, (laughs) So the things that for this that worked about this movie for me, this is one of the few indie movies for me for for uh, as as a viewer mm-hmm. that I think has a, a strong story mm-hmm. to carry the um, the deeper message that's okay. behind it, mm-hmm. and I think that I was going to bring up the same thing about how it says a twenty first century portrait. Yeah, I think that is so cool because whether you're looking at the deeper message that is being. Um, laid out here, mm-hmm. or you're just even watching somebody's rise from s- to stardom. Yeah, it works either way, 
and I think it says something about how like stardom works in our world and things like that. And we'll talk. Uh, I have some things I want to say about that during the deep dive, but I thought that was such a good idea. I thought that was yeah. so cool. Yeah. Um, I think that the colors are awesome. I think some of like the towards the beginning of her life, it's like damp, dark colors, and like it starts yeah. to get brighter, but like there's still like a damp undertone to it, which is cool. Um, the soundtrack outside like her this the songs like that she sings are so cool and i think that there's levels to that but just the music that plays mm-hmm. in the background mm-hmm. i think conveys messages just like how feelings about how you're supposed to be feeling in that situation yeah. really well mm-hmm. the ominous like ding yes ding, ding, which makes it a very kyle ding. movie but um <laughs> that's just one of the things but i actually really liked it in this movie um <laughs> I thought, and Natalie Portman's fire, I think that the the girl that played young Celeste, say her name again for me, I keep... Raffi Cassidy. Raffi Cassidy, thank you. <laughs> I thought she was so good. For that first half, that school shooting scene, even, that that's tough stuff. Yeah. And, um, like you were, like, she was, she was just awesome. Yeah. Um, Jude Law was good, he was fine. Um, I think, I've never seen him play a character like that before, so I thought that was cool. Yeah. Um, the school shooting scene was caught me off guard. I texted Kyle and I was like, I actually had to like pause the movie just cause it was like, I really, it shook me a little bit. Like, yeah. Um, but for the purpose of how the story is being told, mm-hmm. they had to like show the gravity of it. And mm-hmm. like, we'll talk, I think I'll talk a little bit about that later. Um, now the things that didn't work for me. Um, so <laughs> this is partially like, I think what makes Kyle and I different when we engage movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a good thing because I think that this podcast would be boring if we didn't engage. If we movies. just agreed the whole time. If we time. agreed the whole time, right? Um, this movie's just a li- it's, it's just too political for me. Really? Yeah. I, okay. Yeah. Okay. I just, mean, yeah, okay. I personally, I don't think I'm not gonna say it's not political enough. Yeah. I think it's at this point where you're like, you get it. Yeah, okay? yeah, yeah. We get where you're coming from, and it doesn't it doesn't push an agenda, which is. Good. Yes, that is good. I agree with that. Um, th- and it works for the 21st century portrait part. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like, I was so locked into like this, the pop star, like her becoming and this whole character study, which is like a whole thing that I like too. Yeah. Cause those two actresses carry it and you are watching an invasive personal story and I love it. And then there's one part where she's given a press conference after the terrorist attack in the second act yeah. of the movie. And, like, she, there, Willem Dafoe just kind of, like, conveys some ideas about, like, the political nature of our country. Mm-hmm. I was just like, I just don't care. Mm-hmm. And that, I think that is the biggest difference. That is what makes a Kyle movie a Kyle movie is because there is this deeper level um, of dramaticism that comes out of the movie yeah. that Kyle, I think, I think that you love. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it goes back to me talking about Mad Max. Exactly. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. those deeper layers of setting people free. Yeah. And I, human rights. And I like that stuff too. And that's why. And I, I'm excited to actually rewatch the movie with that perspective. There was just something about this movie's deeper. This movie could have stopped at um, the pop star story and how that engages culture, and I would have loved it. See, but then to me, this this film came out the same year. Or just just before Bohemian Rhapsody, yes. But also, kind of a little bit also before A Star Is Born, the Lady Gaga yes. version. Yeah. And to me, this film's better than both of those. Mm. Because, better than Star Is Born because, and I love A Star Is Born. Right. Um, Bohemian Rhapsody is actual trash. <laughs> um, but like, it isn't afraid to take a stance yeah. on things that are divisive. Mm. A Star Is Born. We all know alcoholism and depression are horrible things. Right. And so, of course, we're all going to feel things for that. Yeah. This film's not afraid to be like, we think these things are bad. Yeah. Here are the actions we think should be taken. Mm. Here's how it's affected this person. Yeah. 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 This, this, and, and it's like, people will openly disagree. Mm-hmm. And so, like, A Star is Born, people will never disagree with the message of that film, True. which is why it's more loved. Oh, that's a big pick. Yeah. This one is divisive. Yeah. And I, like, for, for sake of time, mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I, I don't want to deep dive th- this aspect too much because we might talk about it later. Yeah. Um, but, like, that's just a big thing I think mm-hmm. that makes you and I different is I don't, I'm a big advocate for, I'm not a, 
I just don't care about politics enough to get into it. And, like, it's it kind of pulled me out of that situation. Because I was pretty locked into this movie. I'm not yeah. going to lie. Yeah. And then Willem Dafoe kind of gives that over that mm-hmm. underlying message and just kind of pulled me out for a second. I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, Kyle would like this movie. This, yeah. is, a, this is a new podcast topic. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But, yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's uh, let's move on to the next part mm-hmm. of our, our mm-hmm. discussion, though. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk really quickly about just the character of Celeste super quickly in, okay. in, in one realm. Yeah. Um, I'm going to mention trauma. I'm going to mention PTSD. Yeah, so I think we should I think we should preface this before we get into it mm-hmm. that I'm kind of still processing this movie. I'm mm-hmm. still thinking about it, mm-hmm. so I'm going to be asking Kyle questions okay. and I'm going to engage with him. But mm-hmm. I'm curious, so yeah. yeah, let's let's hear what you have to say about trauma and so trauma. Celeste. So Celeste goes through a horrible trauma when she's 13 and she's in eighth grade. There's school shooting. She's a victim of it. She's shot in the neck. It hurts her spine. Um, she has to go through physical therapy. Um, so trauma. Uh, it just affects people very intimately and it affects in a variety of, of ways. Mm. Um, so for Celeste, I want to talk about her PTSD. Mm. Um, Cause yeah. that is, that is like the main, the main way trauma will affect anyone is through, is through PTSD and it, and uh, PTSD can affect anyone. Um, virtually anyone as long, like studies show that it's around age six and up really that a traumatic event will actually affect someone mm. um not to say that it can't affect a toddler or right. someone a person under the age of five but it generally is around age six where this happens so anyway um but celeste she's in she does not cope mm. she does not cope with her ptsd at all and that's shown mostly when she's an adult on act two because um she's quick tempered she engages in very aggressive behavior she's yelling she's getting very physical with little provocation from anyone outside of her source um and it's and it's stated that she drives recklessly she has an entire lifetime of being addicted to her pain medications that she's been on her whole life so therefore the film starts talking about the opioid uh epidemic in in our nation especially in ohio um and then, and then, uh, not to mention that the scene where her and her manager, who's played by Jude Lodge, they just do cocaine and wreck a hotel room. Yep. And so Celeste is a classic. You can look at her as like a case study if you're in school and you're doing case studies like I used to do, um, of PTSD yeah. and someone not handling it well. Mm. She's just a textbook example of it. But what's really hard about PTSD uh, is that symptoms usually show within the first three months of the of the traumatic event, usually. But it's not uncommon that someone will begin to show PTSD over a year after the event. So it's really hard to pinpoint when PTSD happens. So I want to say that for Celeste in Vox Lux, the shooting happens at age 13. She never talks about it and tries to care for everyone else until she loses her virginity from a guy in a band at age 15. And it's two years after the event that she's just lying on her back looking up she's not looking at the camera she's not looking at the guy she's just on her back looking up at the ceiling and she begins to recount what happened to her she begins to recount um this dream that she's had every night and that's the first time she talks about it and it's the only time she talks about it is on a bed with a guy who she doesn't really know after he's taken her virginity Mm. that's the only time it's ever mentioned in the film yeah and that's the only time Celeste that we know of ever talks about it. Mm. And that's two years after the event. Um, and I want to say that also I want to briefly mention narcissistic tendencies. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, everyone in the film's a narcissist. Yeah, a big time. Everyone. Um, especially especially Celeste. But it's because, and I, want, I, I wrote something down in my notes. Um, she, she just, she desires at a young age from the moment this happens even while the shooting's happening to care for the shooter yes she tries to care for her classmates seconds before they're all shot um and that desire to care for everyone else carries throughout her young self her young life but then that desire to care for everyone else is grows to be a belligerent need for upright control yeah which plays out into her narcissism and her ptsd showing itself through drunk driving almost killing a man, yep. being sued, um, and now having to have another resurgence of who she is. Mm. Um, which plays into some of the questions that you're going to ask me. But yeah. I just I felt the need to mention that 
is that Celeste goes from being this young woman who cares deeply about everyone else, yeah. despite her own injury, to an adult. She's 32 when we flash forward, and she only cares about herself, and her desire for upright control is so belligerent that she's hurting everyone that she used to care so deeply about. Mm. Yeah, that's tough. Mm-hmm. That's tough. Um, that's good stuff, though. I appreciate bringing that to the table. Um, so the one of the questions I want to ask you yeah. is that... There is kind of like this, people say it throughout the movie that mm-hmm. when you go through suffering or when you go through this trauma, it makes yeah. you more adult or tough enough to handle adult things. So mm-hmm. that's why she starts going to bars and doing drugs and she yeah, meets yeah. this guy. Mm-hmm. So does the suffering we experience as people yeah. mean that we are more grown up and able to handle the more adult and tough things? There, there's, there hasn't been a lot of like studies on this, but I've heard many pro- counseling professors say that when trauma happens to someone of a young age, they lose innocence. Hmm. Whether it's sexual violence, violence, um, a car accident, or, or some form of trauma, a sense of innocence is then taken from that person. Yeah. Um, so I won't say that, yes, you're able to handle more adult side of life, but studies show when a young person under the age, of, basically anyone under 18, goes through a traumatic event, they feel, they feel like they can't relate to people their age yeah. because they've experienced something outside of the norm. Mm. And so therefore they are drawn to adults and more adult lifestyles because they feel as though they can relate to that. Yeah. Um, so I won't say yes and I won't say no. Right. But I'll just say that it's not uncommon that someone who goes through a traumatic event at a young age falls into those things. Mm. Yeah. The, when I was thinking about this question... Um, from a biblical standpoint, I'm really trying to think like, what if our suffering allows us to do that? And like Paul in Romans five talks mm-hmm. about the, how like we should rejoice in our suffering and the endurance that's produced through that. James, James talks about that too. Right. And yeah. Is, is that James one? Yeah. I James think one. J- yeah. Kind of enjoy my brothers when we trials of various kinds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and from a biblical standpoint, I think that there is growth that comes out of that. There is, but that's if you choose to look at it that way. Exactly, and that's what I was going to say. Okay. Yeah, and like that that is what comes from Christ's redemption of us, mm-hmm. because if you try to handle it from a worldly standpoint, I mean, you kind of see what happens in this movie. Like, yeah. you start to go to things that might feel adult or might make you think that you're adult. Mm-hmm. Or that mostly subdue the pain of the PTSD. Yes. Yeah, and... I think Paul is a great example of enduring suffering mm. rightly just mm-hmm. because he, he, he even comes to like the Philippian church and is like, Hey, like you guys provided for me, you took care of me, but I just mm. want to remind you that Christ is yeah. the one that gives me strength yeah. through this. So, um, so for the next question, these two might, they, they yeah. might play into each other. So as Americans, especially according to this movie, how mm. do we work through difficult times as a nation? And then how should Christians in community okay. respond to it? I'm going to try to answer this quickly and succinctly without being overly political. Okay. <laughs> um, we as a nation work through tragedy with Twitter, social media, blaming the other side, demonizing those who disagree, calling for action without taking any, relying on other people to do the work for us, and protests without progress. Hmm. We, make, we make noise. Yeah. That's all we'll do. Yeah. That's all will do is make noise without any change. And those who disagree with us on what type of change should happen, we then demonize and make the enemy. Mm. Instead of being adults and coming to a conclusion where maybe it's a zero-sum game, but, hey, good could come from that. So I think that's how America works through tragedy, is demonize either those who did the tragedy, so like 9-11, demonize those who did the tragedy, Let's just go all over social media and blast our thoughts and opinions and blast people who are different than us. Hmm. And then let's organize marches and do protests without progress. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, But how should Christians in community kind of respond to tragedy? Yeah. First and foremost, there's always prayer. Yes. There's always, always, always got to lead with prayer. Um, um, But I want to talk just for a moment about abiding. Okay. 
John 15 talks about abiding in Christ, abiding in the word. And I, and I think that trauma cannot truly be handled or tragedy without properly abiding in the, in the Lord. Mm. And that means making scripture your home. Mm. The word abiding, when we look at it in the original language, is used to mean home. Yeah. So are you going to find your home in God? Are you yeah. going to find your home in scripture? The place where you go and you feel most safe. Yeah. And are we as Christian communities using the Bible in that way yeah. as our home where we will go for comfort? And then after you've gone to God and abided in him and are continuing to live in scripture, are you inviting your brothers and sisters into the home with you? Yes. And I think that that prayer and abiding is how the Christian community should respond to tragedy. And after prayerful consideration, then seek the actions to which you think align with God yeah. and his word, mm. not a political party. Yeah. Yeah. Galatians 6 too, called mm. we're carrying one another's burdens yeah. to come alongside mm. one another. That's good. Um, so the next question I want to ask you is kind of, I want to talk more about the culture. Okay. Um, so we're influenced by the culture around mm-hmm. us. Um, that's, that's just what happens as, yeah. as humans. And this movie alluded to the acts of terrorism in the film and the way that the culture around responds and also influences it. Mm-hmm. So how do we as Christians handle or view being influenced by the, the culture that's around us? Yeah. Firstly, not the way that Celeste does in this movie. Yes. She takes everything people are saying about her and in a scene that is... The, it was the first scene that Natalie shot in this movie is it, she's backstage getting ready for the finale yeah. and she's stomping her feet and she's screaming, why doesn't anyone treat me like I'm a person? Mm-hmm. That was her first scene that she saw, shot in this movie. That's crazy. That's crazy to think about. It really um, and so she responds to, to being influenced by culture by taking everything culture saying about her and thinking that it's true. Yeah. Or, or letting culture define her, even though she knows she does not want to. Mm. And so it ends with her, that scene ends with her, you know, just tears and choking on her tears, um, apologizing to her sister for everything she's done to her sister. Yeah. Which is, it breaks my heart and I cry. And I'm like, oh, this is great acting. This is just great. Um, But so we we cannot respond that way Mm. as a culture by letting the culture control us. But I think this first step for Christians is recognizing its inevitability. Mm. Um, that being influenced by culture will happen because of two factors, sin and humanity. We are sinful people. We still sin, even though it is no longer our, our identity as followers of Christ. But we're still humans, thus we live on planet Earth. Yes. So I think we need to just recognize the inevitability of being influenced by culture. Mm. And that we are influenced by culture. Because I've often found that the average Christian is unable to pinpoint the influence of the culture has had on them. You know, we see like, oh, I have to have the best job. I have to be like, I talk to students and parents and Christians all the time of like, oh, I really want this job. And like, I'm so happy. I'm going to make a lot of money in this field. And so like, oh, oh, okay, well, let's slow down because that's what the American culture wants you to have. So that way you can just contribute to their society Mm. rather than contributing to the kingdom. Yeah. So how are you first going to contribute to the kingdom? So I think we need to recognize the inevitability Mm. of being influenced by culture. Yeah. So that way we can abide in the Lord, make our, our home in his word, and watch as he transforms our lives and reveals to us the hidden influence of culture is having. Yeah. And like that first begins by sitting down and recognizing that. Yeah. That culture will influence you. Yeah. Uh, Luke, I think it's Luke 12 talks about how that we have to recognize that life is more than the food we eat and the clothes we wear. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, the second, my final point on this question is engage with it. Don't push it away. Yeah. Don't stiff arm culture because then you're not going to have strong influence with the gospel. Mm, yeah. You just won't. If you stiff arm culture and you say, can't take part, then you are giving up opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to share the gospel and share true hope with people. True. So that's that's how I would answer that question. Yeah, uh, I think what you have to say there has there's a progressive nature to it. Mm-hmm. Like you can't you can't engage with it until you've really accepted that this yeah. is that you need that heart that change. That's going to happen. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's good. Um, I think you're right though. Celeste does not engage appropriately with it, which I, is yeah a great. Which is why it's such a good character mm-hmm. study. Mm-hmm. Um, 
This one is more, this next question is more specifically to something that I don't think was ever overtly said until that end scene when she's crying on the ground with her sister. Yeah. Speaking either personally Mm -hmm. or as a community, should Mm -hmm. we suppress the ugly aspect of ourselves? However you take that to mean. And if not, what should we do? And then maybe answer that as Christians as well. So I'm going to say no. Mm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say no that we should not su- suppress like the ugly aspects of our lives. Doesn't mean that you should keep on sinning. Because yes. sin is ugly. Does not, I do not mean that. But what I mean is as believers, molds cannot grow in the light. Yeah. And so that's something one of my professors used to say. Mm. She would always say, mold can't grow in the light. And the light is Christ. The mold is your sin. Your sin cannot grow in the presence of the Lord. Mm. And so if we sit back and we hide our sin, which is the ugly aspects of our lives, then it's only going to grow. But if we also sit back and we hide the ugly aspects of our lives that have happened to us, whether perpetrated by someone else or, or a way that we feel based on that, like if we hide those things, then those will grow darkness Mm. which will lead to sin which is what happens with celeste she she tries to she shares it once and then we know what then happens like the film cuts between age 15 and 32 because we know the rise to fame that she's gonna have like we get it we've seen it happen thousand times we see it happen every day we're watching it happen with Billie eilish right Right. now and i kind of fear for that girl yeah um but that's a side point, but it kind of gets to the point of the movie here. It's like, we know what happens between ages 15 and 32 mm. for yep. Celeste in this movie, so they don't show it. Yeah. But Celeste tries to hide it, but because she's in the light, the limelight, mm. everyone knows her business. Yeah. And so I think as believers, like, they're, they're, I don't share everything that's happened in my life to every believer I meet. Right. But if I'm entering into a discipleship relationship... With someone which which I have just entered into and tomorrow like we're doing stuff so I'm gonna like share some of the ugliness that's happened to me yeah. so that way they can pray for me and help me make my home in the Lord yeah and so and so society tries to do that by saying share it just go see a therapist. Yeah. But there's no hope in a therapist who's not making their home in the Lord. Yeah. And so, like, I, does that kind of answer that, that question for you? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think America encourages a very individualistic mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's just a common trend in our world today. Yeah. Um, and so to say that we have to suppress our ugly side, which I think the, the movie does... Very, uh, it does beautifully from a filmmaking standpoint. But, but I want to, I want to bring out something we talked about with Joker. Super, just real yeah, quick, yeah, yeah. just real quick. And it's that we live in a society now that is like, expose yourself, let us know your faults, mm. and like that's the surface of like, oh my gosh, that goes back to the Joker. Like, well, everyone has a mental illness, blah right. blah blah, and so like, everyone now has trauma in their life. Yeah, I'm sorry. Maybe you actually don't have trauma and you just want my attention. Yeah. Because speaking from me, I have trauma in my life mm-hmm. that I need to seek help for. Yeah. And so, like, for everyone, again, and this is society, this is social media, share your trauma, share everything about mm-hmm. you. But if we don't like the way you're going about healing, then, like, then we're going to demonize you and you're canceled and no one's going to listen to you and now you're going to end yeah. up in prison because the majority of society just doesn't like you. Yeah. Yeah, and the the healing aspect I think is the biggest thing that you that you're saying there mm-hmm. is like how how you choose to approach that because everybody's open about everything in their life because they can put it out there because they can because, put it out there because they can get attention because they, get because attention. they can get fame exactly if you yep. have enough trauma in your life that you've either have literally actually experienced mm-hmm. you can get famous off yeah. of it yeah yeah that's in, that's an interesting thing because I don't. I don't know if the movie... I mean, to a degree, the movie does say that because she gets famous mm-hmm. because of the school shooting. Literally, the school shooting happens. She goes into rehab. She learns piano while in rehab because she can't walk. So, like, that's good use of her time. Yeah, big time. Um, but then, like, she can't express in words how she feels about the trauma that happened. This is Celeste in the movie. And so her sister writes a song with her. <laughs> And then, like, it's being broadcast all over the nation, and then they get picked up, and the next thing you know, they're in New York making an album, and, like, the nation puts its hope in Celeste. Mm. 
The nation doesn't put its hope in Christ. Exactly. The nation never has. And she even says that. Celeste says that, that right. she is the God. She's the right. New, in her, New Testament. In, the, in this weird speech that she just kind of gives off the top of her head when she's 32, she goes like, she goes like, I am, like, she goes like, basically, I am God now. Yep. And, like, is that not how society looks at our celebrities? Is right. that not how a lot of people look at Lady Gaga? Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, Lady Gaga, like, she she has her, her little monsters and her, like, society that she's built. Yeah. And, like, she makes good music sometimes. Yeah, I yeah. really, you know, she gave a great performance to Thursday morning. I'm not trying yeah. to knock Lady Gaga. I'm just saying, like, that's the way society now looks at Gaga. Yeah. That's the way society looks at its celebrities as, like, tell us what to believe, tell us where to go, tell us who to vote for, tell us what to think, because we don't want to do the work ourselves. Yep. So where, where do you, the question then is, where do you turn your eyes for healing? You got to turn your eyes to the Lord. 100%. You have to turn your eyes to the Lord because he brings healing. He's ultimate healing. He's ultimate hope. Yeah. And we've talked about that with Joker. Yeah. This is just the same conversation we had with Joker. Like the Lord is healing. Yeah. Justification, sanctification, redemption comes mm-hmm. through only Christ because yeah. He did it for us. Exactly. And that if if you are looking elsewhere, mm-hmm. if you are looking to a celestite person, you are not going to have redemption. And because what the movie also shows is that she's just as, if not more, broken than you. Exactly. But it also what's crazy is during the the last twenty minutes of this film are just a concert. Yeah. It's just Celeste concert. Yeah. And I think that's my, my last question that I have for okay. you. What, what's the point of that scene? The point of that scene stems from the start of that night with her in that backstage area throwing a temper tantrum and crying and then apologizing to her sister. Yeah. But then being like, all right, one for the money, two for the show. Hmm. I have to do this because people paid money. And then, like, it cuts to people in the crowd, and they're, like, bedazzled like she is a little bit, and they're, like, screaming, and they're reaching, and they're crying. Yeah. Not knowing what that they're, that they're, I'm going to use air quotes around this word, savior. Yeah. Is dead. Yeah. Is just dead. Yeah. And, but then also, like, it shows, it also talks about early on in the film that Celeste just has this it factor that not a lot of people have, which makes people drawn to her. Yeah. And so her whole life that's just been built up and now she knows that she has it and people will listen to her, which is why she's like coming down the stage at the beginning of the performance. Like this is the new, new Testament things I'm offering you. And then in the middle of her show, she's like, have you cried yourself to sleep at night? And of course everyone's cried themselves to sleep at night. That's not something new. We've all done it at least once. And if you haven't, you will. I'm sorry. (laughs) You're gonna. Yep. Like, and so she just grasps at these, like, high tangible things of philosophy of, like, just human nature. And, of course, people will respond to it. Yeah. Because they will respond however, you know, the gagas of the world tell right. them to. Yeah. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that you want to say about this movie before we wrap up today? Um, I just want to say that, like, this, this film has a lot to say about society today. Yeah. Um, it has a lot of correct things to say. Oh, yeah. Because it is holding up society itself and making it look in the mirror of itself and saying, basically, are you okay with this? Yeah. Because it seems like you're pretty okay with it. Yeah. You know, we're, we're pretty okay making a lot of noise about things but not doing the, the hard labor. Mm. You know, I think a lot about um, the, the March for Our Lives movement, like where I went. I went to the march in Cleveland just to see what it was all about. Yeah. Um, and it was just people yelling hmm. and what changes come of it? None. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Like maybe, maybe in the coming years we'll see more change or whatever, but like people are perfectly comfortable getting in a march and saying they've done their duty. Yeah. And I think a lot of Christians fall into that of like, I showed up on Sunday. I did my duty. Right. Rather than the hard labor of making scripture your home. Mm, yeah. 21st century portrait is extremely appropriate for this mm-hmm. movie. And I, I love that about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just love this movie. And uh, I'll say this is that it entered my top 10 at <laughs> number six. So it's in that nebulous back five. Right. But Inglorious Bastards is out of my top wow. 10. Upon my third viewing of this movie with the questions that you put in front of me, Changed the game. Interesting. Changed the game for me. Crazy. Because well, you forced me to do the hard labor of going into my counseling textbooks from school and going back to my home in the Word hmm. and finding the antidote 
to to the media, to trauma, and to the media trauma firestorm that is the burning fireball of the United States. Mm, interesting. And that is abiding and making your home in the ward. Yep. Yep. Big time. I'm glad I was able to help you engage that way. Well, thank you. Man. Yes. Yes. Thank you for bringing this movie to the table, Kyle. Hey, you know what? For every like two movies you make me watch and talk about, <laughs> we're going to pull out an indie film hey, that's fine. no one else has ever heard of. Yep, let's do it. Um, but Vox Lux is available now for you to purchase on Amazon Prime. It's on Hulu. Um, it's on Hulu, so if you have Hulu, uh, it's two hours of your time. It's going to be well spent. It does. It feels like one hour. It feels like one hour. Again, my only gripe is that it should be three. Yep. Um <laughs> So yeah, I go ahead, get this on Hulu, get this on Amazon, and you will not regret it. All right. Thank you for listening today uh, to our episode of The Critical Millennial as we delved into Vox Lux. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. I did. Yeah, I, I actually did too. I actually <laughs> learned a lot, so I'm glad we had this conversation. Um, look for us on social media on Instagram and Twitter. Just search for The Critical Millennial and look for that purple and gold X because it marks the spot. For the next two weeks, we are going to be talking about the number ones on each of our lists, and I I am very excited. So we're actually going to take time to deep dive, I think, a little mm-hmm. bit, each of those movies. Yeah, for so sure. So that will be the main focus for the next two episodes. Next week, we are going to be doing Kyle's number one on his list, and I'm not going to say what it is. We're if I grip li- this table any harder, it'll break. I know. Please don't. <laughs> So next week, show up, listen. It's going to be a fun ride, and I'm actually super excited to hear it. And I'm going to cry. He, he probably will. I've cried every episode the past three weeks. Yeah, so. yeah, so it'll happen. It, for yeah, sure. But definitely. Well, thank you for listening to The Critical Millennial, and, uh, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Deuces. Oh my gosh, the critical millennial!